Thanks, Matt. And I add my welcome to you all. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the book of Exodus. And I'm just going to add another announcement or two. Today is the last Sunday of the month, and it is our custom on the last Sunday of the month to, to pray for healing for those who would like to avail themselves. And so at the close of this service, there will be prayer teams stationed along the front here of this, just in front of the platform, and they would love to pray for you, and I'll draw more attention to that at the end. And then the other announcement is that just... Uh, Today will be the last day we're going to be in the book of Exodus for a little while. We're going to hit the pause button after this Sunday, take the month of August to consider God's word to us from various psalms, and then we will pick up the book of Exodus again the second Sunday of September, and we're going to make a a sprint to uh, finish the book of Exodus by the last Sunday of November. So though... Uh, up to now, we've taken our time. We're, we're, no more dilly-dallying. We're going we're gonna to get to the end. Today, we're going to give our attention to Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. And I want to invite you, if you're able, to please stand with me. This is, when we do this, it's an expression of our respect for God's Word. And we are listening carefully to the reading of God's Word. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. People stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This word is God's word. Let's pray. I find myself so mindful, Lord, that uh, though in an experiential way, We're a long ways from what took place at the base of that mountain. Thunder, lightning, trumpet, smoke, earthquake, audible voice of God. And yet today, by the power and the working of your Holy Spirit, you continue to reveal yourself with divine, supernatural, transforming, saving, redeeming, awesome power. And unless you do that again today, 
then this gathering will be no different than any other human gathering. God forbid that all this just be flesh and blood experience. We, we want to know you. We want to hear you. We want to be changed by you. So please reveal yourself among us here for the glory of your greatness and through the person and the work of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe seated. A couple weeks ago, I took uh, two of my grandchildren with me to do something that I love doing. We went fishing, or as we sometimes say in our family, catching. Um, that's it's because their mom and dad had prepared them well. They were all excited to go fishing with Grandpa, and we, we got to the lake while there was still plenty of daylight. We got in the boat while the lake was still calm. And those children were eager to see fish until I hooked up with one, one that I immediately recognized was not a friendly freshwater version of Nemo. As, as I fought to land this untamed aquatic creature, I got more and more excited while my grandchildren became more and more apprehensive. When I finally got this significantly larger than average northern pike into the boat, it, it still had a lot, of, a lot of fight. It was thrashing violently and this mouthful of teeth communicated to those wide-eyed children this green snapping beast was no pet with which to snuggle. Getting close to this fish was not safe. In fact, they just backed up as far as they possibly could in this small little aluminum fishing boat. And all the excitement and all the anticipation of seeing and catching and perhaps even touching a fish was gone. Meanwhile, <laughs> you know, they're clearly anxious. They want nothing more to do with this. But meanwhile, Grandpa is thinking, this is awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. And awesome always has an element of fear to it. There were two kinds of fear represented in the boat that night, just as there are two kinds of fear represented in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, referring to this particular text, Charles Spurgeon writes, fear is a word that has a wide range of meanings. There is a kind of fear to be shunned and avoided. That is a fear which perfect love casts out because it has torment. But there is another sort of fear which has in it the very essence of love and without which there would be no joy even in the presence of God. Instead of perfect love casting out this fear, perfect love nourishes and 
cherishes it and derives strength from it. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21, we see two very different kinds of fear. One, which we should, Spurgeon says, shun and avoid. The other is a fear which has in it the very essence of love. It is a fear from which we derive strength. Or more specifically, and I believe this is the main point, there is a fear from which Christians draw strength to fight sin. There, there's, a, there's a kind of fear which Christians draw strength to fight sin. And it is this fear that we should desire. It's this kind of fear that we should nourish and cherish. So we're going to explore the difference between these two kinds of fear. And, and let, let's think carefully in particular about the fear that we should want, the fear we should cultivate, and how it can actually transform our lives. So the context of this text, that, that is the, this scene at the base of Mount Sinai, it, it is very crucial. We know that it's crucial because the author recounts the scene Twice He just repeats it once in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19. And then again, he, he tells us again about what's going on here in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. And in the second account, however, we learn of the Israelites' reaction. How they're affected and respond to the awesome and overwhelming sights and sounds that are happening before them. And, and they are rocked by the appearing of God. So look again at Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. So God himself come down, descended on the mountain, revealing himself to them and speaking to them in such a way that all their senses are engaged with you know, far more intensity than if they were just simply watching it on the IMAX screen and XD. They experience in this an involuntary physical reaction to all that they're seeing and hearing. And it says they were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. They were conscious like never before of the holiness of God and they are aware like never before of their own sinfulness and guilt and shame. And that's because they had just heard the issuing of the ten holy commandments of God. And so they, they back away from this apparent danger zone 
as if they could back away. They, they aimed to create some space between them and, and uh, ground zero. And, and we know that Moses himself was, was similarly affected. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, it says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You know, it's, it's nearly impossible I, to, to think of some human or historical equivalent that we might draw from to help us to begin to relate to their experience. One I actually recently read about is the eyewitness account of the uh, first test of the atomic bomb. One scientist who worked on the, that, the Trinity project said, I am sure that at the end of the world, in the last millisecond of the earth's existence, the last man will see what we have just seen. Regarding his close encounter with God, Moses says something remarkably similar in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26. Who is there? Of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived. The Israelites they, they were, were so terrified. They, they never wanted to have this experience again. They don't want the Lord to speak directly to them ever again. They've, it's because they've, they're afraid that if he does, and if they hear it, they'll die. Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So, so this revelation, this awareness of God's holiness and this, this consciousness of their own sinfulness in light of the Ten Commandments, which they had just heard, it made them fear for their very lives. And so they appeal to Moses to act as their mediator between God and them. It's because they want to live. They want to live and they don't want to die. Now, Keep in mind, these are God's people. These are the people whom God has sovereignly and graciously chosen. These are the people whom God has so dramatically, powerfully saved from Egyptian slavery and oppression. These are the people whom God has carried out on eagle's wings to himself, and they are petrified. They are trembling. They're backing up, withdrawing from God's presence. They do not want to hear his audible voice again. And Moses sees this, he, he recognizes the fear which has gripped them, 
and, and this, is, this is a fear, it's a, this is not a fear that they should nourish and cherish. So Moses, recognizing that, challenges it. He challenges their fear. He opposes their fear. And Moses then seeks to alleviate their fear by replacing it with another fear. A fear from which and by which they might actually draw strength rather than melting their bones. They'll draw strength to fight sin. Look again at verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be for you, that you may not sin. That sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> you read that, you say, wait, I thought you said don't fear. Don't fear so that you may fear? Sounds like a contradiction. Except it's not a contradiction. What we have here is actually a contrast between two kinds of fear. One is an inappropriate fear of God, a fear to be shunned and avoided, as Spurgeon said. And the other is an appropriate fear of God, a fear to be nourished and cherished. And I'd say treasured. And Moses' purpose is to free the people of God and, and to free us from an improper kind of fear. And he's doing this by calling them, and, he's, and God is calling us to a proper kind of a fear. So, what's, what's an improper fear of God? What is it that's improper about their reaction? Moses says, do not fear. Why? <laughs> well, what's wrong with this? You know, when the boat is small and there's a lot of snapping teeth, you know, what, what it, what's wrong with backing off here? Creating some space? Do you see what it is that Moses does not approve of? Moses does not affirm the Israelites' reaction to God's appearance and to God's commandments. Notice, Moses doesn't say, you should be afraid. You have every reason to be shaken. The Lord your God is holy. And you... You most certainly are not holy, so stand back. He doesn't say that. Rather, Moses challenges this response. Moses commands them not to fear God in this way. Their fear is a sinful fear. Their fear is a sinful fear because... This is what makes it so improper. It, this fear drives them away from God rather than drawing them to God. That's the essence of improper fear. If our impulse is to run for it, hide, cover ourselves, head for cover, rather than drawing near to God, this is the 
essence of improper fear. A fear that causes people to withdraw from God is not an appropriate fear of God. When God's people hear His voice, when God's people hear His commands, and then keep their distance, keep their distance on account of guilt and shame, That's a tormenting fear. The kind of fear that generates an impulse to back off, to stand far off. That's an improper fear of God. And and it's so wrong because it it seems to have made them forget everything that God has done to save them and to deliver them to himself. How is it, (laughs) you wonder, how how is it that they they could so quickly have forgotten all that God had said in Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 when he reminded them, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, Charles Spurgeon preaching on this text says when the Lord spoke to these people with the voice of a trumpet and thunder he did not speak in anger after all but in love for his first words set the keynote here they are I am the Lord your God which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage What gracious words, what happy memories they arouse, what loving kindness they record. Loved ones, does Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 sound like the words of a God who is eager to take them out? The Lord hasn't brought them out of Sinai to crush them. He brought them out of Sinai to introduce himself to them. God brought them out to betroth himself to them, to have them and to hold them from this day forward to the end. I am the Lord, your God. The the Israelites didn't just hear the audible voice of God. They they heard the audible voice of their God, their Redeemer, their Bridegroom. And He has delivered them so that they might delight in Him and be satisfied by Him as their supreme treasure. He didn't bring them out so that they'd be freaked out by Him and distance themselves from him. You know, it, it, it would be no surprise in a gathering like this that um, there are some here who, who are tempted to feel that kind of improper fear. You, you've, over the last several weeks, you've, You've heard sermon after sermon on the Ten Commandments. God willing, 
God willing, you become aware of your sins. We've all broken the Ten Commandments. All of them. And personally and situationally, perhaps, your sins have been surfaced, brought to the forefront of your consciousness. Your sins are out there. And as this awareness lands on you, lands in your boat, your impulse is to flee from God. And as your impulse is is to flee from God rather than draw near to God, confessing your sins to God, receiving forgiveness from God, then your fear falls squarely in the improper category. It's, it's like Adam, Adam's fear in the garden when after sinning and in his guilt and in his shame, he, he tries to hide from God. Loved ones, listen, any impulse to withdraw from God rather than draw near to God, especially when we have sin to confess to God. It is an improper fear of God. And then notice what Moses says next. Again, verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. So so God God has come to test you. In what sense sense is this a test? Well, well, it's helpful, I think, to recognize it's not the first test. Uh, Just a few chapters earlier in Exodus 15, specifically verse 25, God had tested the Israelites at the waters of Marah, oh, the people were, they were, they were panicky because there's no fresh water. They, they know that it's, it's toxic. <laughs> and since God has brought them there, God's testing them there at the waters of Marah. And then in another chapter later, in Exodus 16, verse 4, God tells the Israelites not to gather any more manna that they, than they could consume than they needed for each day. And again, since God is the one who provided the manna, God's testing them with the manna. And each test involves a trial that required trust in God. You trust him and you obey him. If you believe that he knows what he's doing, you you trust his wisdom, that he's for you and not against you, you'll do what he says. And God is saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me to keep you and to care for you and to provide for you and to be enough for you? And this current test in Exodus chapter 20 verse 20 once again requires trust in God, a trust in God that will produce an obedience to God. Will they obey him out of fear? Or will they obey him based on trust? This is a test. 
for all of us. God has graciously come to them. God has descended. God has stooped to them in order to test them so that the fear of him may be before him. He delivered them. He revealed himself to them. He has spoken audibly to them so that they might properly fear him and not distance themselves from him. So what does passing this test look like? What is the proper fear of God? What does healthy, holy fear of God look like? Consider this definition by Sinclair Ferguson, who writes, true fear of God, proper fear of God, right fear of God, is at one and the same time a consciousness of being in the presence of true greatness and majesty, a thrilling sense of privilege, and overflow of respect and admiration, and above all, a sense that his opinion about my life is the only thing that matters. To someone who fears God, his fatherly approval means everything, and the loss of it is the greatest of all griefs. To fear God is to have a heart that is sensitive to both his greatness and his graciousness. To fear God is to possess a desire to please Him in, a heart, in, in heart and practice, relying on Him and His promises and warnings. And this is an important phrase. And not grieve Him by sinning against Him. Isn't that what Moses is pointing us to in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20? The... the the effect of, of a right and proper fear of God is, is that we may not sin. The experience of the Israelites at Sinai is to test them and to teach them to fear the Lord and to trust the Lord and to keep them from sinning against the Lord. In other words, the right and proper fear of God doesn't drive you away from God. Proper fear of God draws us to God and keeps us from sinning against God. It's, it's this, loved ones, it's this kind of fear that, gentlemen, it'll keep you from speaking harshly to your wife. It's this kind of fear ladies, that will keep you from becoming bitter toward your husband. It'll keep you from disciplining your children in some self-righteous anger. It'll keep you from complaining about your job. It'll restrain you from cheating on a test. It'll restrain you from gossiping about your coworker. It'll restrain you from Remaining silent when somebody is slandering 
It'll keep you from coveting your neighbor's things. It'll keep you from clicking the link to that porn site. It'll keep you from lying to cover your embarrassment or shame. And however many other examples of breaking the Ten Commandments may come to your mind or may have come to your mind over these last several weeks. Perhaps you have patterns of sin in your life that reveal the presence of improper fear of God and your, your need to grow in proper fear of God. And if you find yourself seemingly trapped in patterns of sin and paralyzed by guilt and shame because of your sin and feeling hopeless about ever weakening and conquering your sin there, and your impulse is to withdraw. There is hope in an unexpected place. Our hope is in the proper fear of God. So what can we do to nourish and cherish and grow in this good kind of fear? Well, why not begin by simply asking God for it? Maybe it's too simple, but according to Psalm 86, verse 11, the psalmist prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. We could ask. Proper fear of God is one of the most fundamental promises that belong to those whom God has made new. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. This profound statement and summary of the new covenant. God says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. There's a promise to entrust ourselves to and to pray. So ask, ask God for it. Ask God for it. The fact is, I would encourage you to ask God for it right now. The fact is, I, I would encourage you at the end of our service, when it's time to pray for people, rather than keeping a safe distance, come and pray. The second thing is, is to perhaps cultivate a, to, a way of cultivating a proper fear of God is by setting out afresh to know God. Again, this isn't exactly rocket science, but to, but to fear God rightly, we must know God accurately. According to Psalm 34, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack no good thing. You see the connection between tasting, seeing, knowing, experiencing, and trusting and fearing rightly and experiencing everything that we need? If you don't have one, I would encourage you to purchase an exhaustive concordance and just do a word study on the phrase fear of the Lord. Start looking especially in the, up fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. It's a great place to start.
and maybe read a book or two or three. Some of you maybe more. <laughs> like Knowing God or J.I. Packer or The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul or Rejoice and Tremble, which is not that old of a book by Michael Reeves or The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. These are, these are just helpful tools. I'm going to circle back around here to this one again. I think a third thing is to confess. To confess our unbelief and improper fear to our brothers and sisters in Christ. To ask them to pray for us and to, to help us to nourish this proper fear of God. And, and always remember that the, that the proper fear of God is going to draw you to the Lord, not away from the Lord. So never forget that. Ne and never forget that the proper fear of God will keep us from sinning against the Lord. Now, briefly, there's just one last thing I th we definitely need to give our attention to in this text. And when the Israelites, when the Israelites saw that this, you know, lightning flashing, this mountain smoking hearing these thunderclaps shaking the ground beneath them and the voice of God himself. They, they got one thing right. They understood their need for a mediator. In light of God's terrifying holiness and their own overwhelming sinfulness, they needed someone to represent them before God. Someone, someone who would dare to approach God on their behalf. And so, where do they go? Where do they turn? They go to Moses. Verse 19. You speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. <laughs> and then verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You can only imagine what an awesome little walk that was. You do it, Moses. You be the mediator. Loved ones, th this... At this point in the text, we are on holy ground because as they realize their need for a mediator, the Israelites are expressing what we all need and how Moses points to another and final mediator. One commentator writes, Out of this realized need, one of the greatest revelations in the long line of Old Testament promises of the Messiah comes. One greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sole mediator between God and man, uniquely and supremely making God known, the Lord Jesus Christ, born under the law, flawlessly keeping the law, committed no sin, perfectly fulfilling the law for sinners like us who are incapable of keeping even one commandment with any consistent, flawless integrity. Jesus, Jesus alone, 
Jesus alone does what Moses was not able to do, for Moses himself was a lawbreaker. We desperately need a mediator. And that, that should be the effect on our souls. That, that should be the conclusion with an exclamation point on us as we have made our way through the entirety of these Ten Commandments. Jesus is who we need. Jesus is the mediator that Moses foreshadowed. Jesus is the mediator that God provided. And he keeps the law flawlessly on our behalf and then he dies in our place as our substitute, suffering the wrath that we deserve for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God for all, each and every violation, big, small, whatever, of every violation of the Ten Commandments. Jesus suffered the penalty that we deserved while giving himself as a ransom for all who will trust in him. And so we no longer live under the condemning power of the law because of the mediator that God has provided for us in his son. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are joined to Christ Jesus by faith. And this pronouncement of no condemnation because of Christ's work as our mediator in our place, on our behalf, loved ones, it produces, it, it produces not only love for God, but it produces a proper fear of God. The psalmist himself says in Psalm 130 verse 4, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We're going to close with a song. And as we do, I, I, I exhort you this is a reason to rejoice. And to rejoice because the one who is greater than Moses has come. The mediator of a new and better covenant. The, the, the nearness of God for us, it's all different for us. Because Christ is the greater mediator, the final mediator. He is our mediator. Because there is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Let's pray. The author of Hebrews writes, You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure. But you have come rather to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. We have a better word. You have spoken to us a better word. And so, Lord, as you would reveal yourself to us in the fullness of your purity, and as you, as you reveal yourself in your purity and holiness, and we become so profoundly aware of our impurities and our need for a mediator, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would uphold the glory of Jesus, a better mediator, the final mediator. And I pray that you would dispel improper fear. And as we close this service, Lord, you would move among us and in us that we might draw near to you, that we would call upon you. Rather than standing far off, we would, we would seek you. And in humility, confess our sins to you and receive forgiveness from you that we might be cleansed. Your people, this holy nation, this kingdom of priests before our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.